Thank you, Grayson and team. What a great time of worship, um, which is kind of redundant because we're, we're worshiping a great God, so every time we get to worship Him, it's a great time of worship. Amen? All right, let's try that again. Uh, we got the Easter hangover. What's, what's like, we're, y'all eat too many eggs last week. We can't quite get, all right. I said anytime we get a chance to worship, it's a great time of worship because we worship a great God. Amen? Amen. All right, we woke up. Micah chapter 6 today. Micah chapter 6. Not for Micah. Again, y'all just, I'm, I'm throwing fastballs and y'all are swinging behind. Come on, let's go. All right, so what I want to talk to you about today is living well in a canceled culture. Um, this has been a message that's kind of been stirred on my heart. And I've, I really wanted to talk about this topic for a while, but I really couldn't find a place to kind of put my feet down. And so a, a couple of weeks ago, I was looking through some old messages that I had preached and just some old materials that I had. And I was just trying to, try, just asking God, you know, we, I know what I'm talking about next week. And I'd already kind of had that in the hopper. I had it worked up. So I was like, God, what do I do after Easter before next Sunday's sermon? What do I, how do I get the music to push me and, and how do I hear from you, and how do I get a word? And so I'm looking through this stuff, and I came across a message I'd written years ago, and I used the structure of it, but I changed the topic, okay? So, so we're going to be in Micah 6 today, and I want us to talk about what it means for us to live well in a canceled culture. How do we do that? How do we, how do we exemplify what it means to be a follower of Christ? How do we model Christ? How do we show Christ to a lost world when we're living in a culture that is so radically uh, and antagonistically against what the Bible stands for and what Christ stands for. So I'm going to just define the term cancel culture in just a minute, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we do, I want to really give us a, a foundational understanding of who we're hearing from this morning in this passage. And so I want to talk to you about the words of Micah and the chapter, I mean, the, the book of Micah and everything about it. So you got to understand the man a little bit to understand the context. So Micah's, uh, Micah's name means who is like Jehovah. He was from a small town called Morasheth Gath, which was about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Again, I'm, I'm, I identify with Micah, and the more I study about him, the more I realize why. He's from a small town. Uh, he, he's a contemporary of Isaiah as well as Hosea. Uh, by the way, he was not Malachi. Micah and Malachi, two different guys. Uh, Malachi came around about 300 years after Micah, um, so he's, they're not the same person. Uh, I like Micah for several reasons, but then as I was studying about Micah and looking him up, in the New American Standard Version, the Bible calls him the Southern Prophet. I like that. I, I would take that. If somebody called me the Southern Prophet, I'd be okay with that. No offense to our, our, my favorite Michiganders are here. Uh, no offense to them. Uh, but I, I'd like that. I kind of like that. Here's the problem now. Once I knew that he was known as the Southern Prophet, for some reason, every time I read Micah now, I hear it in the voice of Jeff Foxworthy, which is interesting but off-putting. It's the way my brain works, you know. If you've heard from the Lord, you might be a... No, I'm just kidding. So the book of Micah was written between 735 and 700 B.C., and it contains three cycles of what we call Judgment Now, Blessings Later messages. Now, the judgment now, blessings later, is not unusual in books of prophecy, but what's unusual is that Micah has three occurrences in just seven brief chapters. Uh, Micah 1.1 through 2.13, Micah 3.1 through 5.15, and then where we are today, Micah 6.1 through 7.20. So let, let's, 
let's understand that this is the cycle. This is what he's saying. And now we need to understand, I guess the next question would be, well, why is God mad at Israel? Why, why is Israel and Judah on the naughty list? And why is God speaking to them with these three cycles of judgment now, blessings later through the prophet Micah? Well, I'm going to read these for you. And I want you to, this is the challenge for us. I'm going to read these for you, and, and I want you to think about our modern times and how these sync up. Do these align with the times we live in? But here's the challenge. I'm not talking about just outside of this building. I'm not talking about just outside of the family of faith. I'm talking about within those who claim the name of Christ. And I, and I, I use that phrase intentionally not followers of Christ, those who use the name of Christ. Because only God can judge their salvation. We judge their fruit. We look at what, they, what their lives tell us about who they are. No root, no fruit, and no fruit, no root. But I want us to look at this and listen from Micah's point of view. What he's, the message he's delivering because of what God is angry about. I want us to think about inside and outside the church if this applies to today. Number one, Israel was being unfaithful to God. God's people were being unfaithful to him. Number two, they had arrogant and violent leaders. Number three, they rejected the true prophets while accepting false prophets. Number four, their merchants were dishonest in their dealings. They were cheating people. Number four, they abused the people of God. They took advantage of God's people for their own purposes. And then finally, Basically, Israel and Judah were acting like they didn't know God, much less that they were God's chosen people. Now, is anybody tracking with me this morning so far that this sounds like an indictment against not only the, the, the modern church, but also our society? There, there's a little bit of blame to go around on both those communities. If, if you follow what I'm talking about here, with the way that God is angry with Israel and Judah could be the very reason that he could be angry with us today because we've done some of these things inside the church and we've seen and allowed a lot of this stuff to go on outside the church. So then the next logical question in my mind, if God is doing this judgment now, blessings later, and he does three of them, and, and he's angry at Israel, and he's angry at Judah, he's angry at his people, then here's the logical question. Why would God bless them at all? Why would God restore them? Why would God heal their land? Why would God renew them? Why would God continue to be with them? And I have three words that's going to give you the answer. And it's very simply, God is faithful. He's faithful. That's why He forgave them. That's why He blessed them. That's why He didn't burn them up or, or cut them off. It's because He's faithful. Listen to me, church. That's the same reason I'm here today. I'm here today because God is faithful. If God weren't faithful, he'd have killed me a long time ago. 2 Timothy 2.13, one of my favorite verses. If we are faithless, and let me just parenthetically say, we can change that word if to when. Amen? You can amen or owe me. I don't care. You know just like I do that it's not a matter of if, Matt. It's a matter of when. As much as I want to do the right thing, I know that it's not a matter of if I do the wrong thing. It's a matter of when I do the wrong thing. And this is why this verse is so reassuring to me. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, the only thing God can't do is go against his nature. He can't be unrighteous because he's righteous. He can't be unholy because he's holy. And he cannot be unfaithful because he is faithful. So that's Micah. And that's how he is talking to Israel and Judah and also how I believe he's talking to us today. Now, let's define the term cancel culture and let's talk a little bit about it. 
So what is it? Well, the Cambridge Dictionary, because here, here's the thing. I don't want to use my definition. I don't want to go to some, like, you know, give my slant on it. I went to, like, a, several sources and looked, and, and the Cambridge Dictionary has basically the universal middle-of-the-road language on what is cancel culture. And this is how they define it. A way of behaving in a society or group, especially on social media, in which it is common to completely reject and stop supporting someone because they have said or done something that offends you. So in other words, we have a society that does not want to forgive what it sees as egregious past transgressions. Now, it just came to me in the first service. I should have written the notes down uh, but I don't remember all the details. It's probably best that I don't because I don't want to. I'm not trying to throw mud up here. But there was a, a a magazine, I believe, and there was a girl that was supposed to be promoted to the editor. And then one of her coworkers or, or subordinates or whatever found some old tweets that she had put out that had some fill in the blank phobic language. Because you know nowadays that's the, we're scared to death of being called fill in the blank phobic, whatever it is. I wish to God we could get to a place where we would be sin phobic. Amen. I wish, we could, I wish we could get to a place where we were sin-phobic. We were scared to death of sinning and dishonoring a holy God, but we're not there. We don't want to be called anything phobic. That's like the key word now when you hear, well, you know, he's so-and-so phobic. <gasps> so they found some language where this person was using racist language or something, and it was when she was very young, but it doesn't matter because the cancel culture says, oh, oh, oh. You used it before, you were forevermore labeled as that, and we cancel you. And so not only did she not get the promotion, I think they fired her. And the comical thing is, about two weeks later, the same girl that outed her for her former social media post had somebody else do the same thing to her, where she had used some very racist language in some of her tweets when she was very young. And there's a reason they have the phrase young and dumb. No offense. No offense. I'm not. Listen, I was, I'm still sometimes wondering if I'm past it. But the same girl that outed her other coworker to keep her from getting the promotion, they outed her. That's what the cancel culture does. It finds fault no matter when you said it. You said it, you're guilty of it, and you're always ostracized out of society because of it. You can never be redeemed. Now think about this. Think about how antithetical to the gospel the cancel culture really is. We serve a God that says, no matter what you've done, I will redeem you. My son came and drank the full cup of my wrath. His sinless life died on a cross, raised from the grave so you can have eternal life no matter what you've done. If you're here today, that's good news. If you're here today and you've been living a lifestyle that's sinful to God, here's good news. He is not a cancel culture God. He will redeem you. Because the Bible is the only foundation for proper morality and this culture rejects the Bible... The grading of these transgressions is on a sliding scale depending on the individual and the offense. That's another problem with the cancel culture. There's no groundwork. There's no foundation to stand on. Okay, everything starts from here, and here is the parameters that we use. There's none of that. It's just, I'm offended, you're canceled. You, you've hurt my feelings, you're canceled. Your, your symbols of anything back in the Civil War days, you're canceled. And let me, let me explain a little bit of our culture is rebelling against God. That's the bottom line of what all this is. Our culture is rebelling against God, and at the same time, our culture is making itself a God. And if you don't believe me, look at the, look at the language that the culture uses about things. You, the, everything in our culture is designed to draw people to worship it. Politicians, social media, actors, actresses, uh, athletes, you name it. 
I have three things here I wrote down I want you to think about. Three areas in our culture where we are rebelling against God. Number one, we're rebelling against God and how He created us. Now, I want to be as clear as possible when I say this. I have great sympathy for anybody who is confused about their gender. I, I don't want to make a mockery of that. I don't want to, I don't want to belittle that. I, I really do. I feel great sympathy because I can't imagine having that kind of angst and that kind of uh, turmoil going on in my life that I couldn't, I couldn't come to grips with what my gender is. But here's the thing. That is rebelling against God because God created you. The Bible says He formed you, He made you, He knit you together in your mother's womb. He made you a male or He made you a female. And to say otherwise is an act of rebellion. And again, I'm not trying to say it's an open act of rebellion, an intentional act of rebellion. Some people are literally just confused. Some people have mental disorders that make it hard for them to process things. We should never mock or belittle people who are struggling with that. But to acknowledge and, and affirm it, is wrong as well because what we're doing is we're saying, yes, I agree, God messed up. So that's the first act of rebellion against God as we rebel against how we were created. Number two, we rebelled against God and how he designed marriage. And I know this is controversial. I know this is a push-button topic. I don't care. The, the fact of the matter is the Bible is clear all the way through. God created them, male and female, and he created them to be in a perfect union, a covenantal marriage with him in the center and by the way, church, when we, if we're going to honor marriage and be against same-sex marriage, we've got to honor marriage and be against cheating on our spouse and be, be against uh, abuse and be against uh, belittling and, and all this other stuff that goes on. We have to value marriage in our own marriage, in our own churches, before we can ever go around pointing fingers outside the doors, okay? But we rebel against the holy God when we say that we okay or we affirm gay marriage because God implemented it. He, look, he looked all over the garden and he could not find a suitable mate, a suitable helper for Adam. And he said, I'm going to have to make one. And what did he make? He made woman. He didn't make another Adam. He made Eve. So from the very beginning, it was God's intention that man and woman enter, enter into a union of holy marriage with God in the center. And that's how we would have marriage. And, and not to be gross, and I, we've got kids in here, but just being honest with you, the sexual relationship between a husband and wife is a very special thing that God gave us. It's not something that should be exploited. It's not something that should take place outside of marriage. I'm just, just going to be blunt here. That does not have to be a good thing. It could be not something like taking out the trash. But God gave us a blessing by allowing it to be a beautiful experience. But he, he gave us that so we could have it within a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Faithfully between a man and a woman. So this, that's the second thing. The third way that he is that we are rebelling against him is that we're rebelling against him in the way we treat others. He has called us to treat one another and to treat other people a certain way, and we are rebelling against him when we don't treat them that way. Now, here's the, here's the point of clarification I want to make sure you get. Rebelling against God about gender, rebelling against God about marriage, and rebelling against God about the way we treat others are all equal. There's not one worse than the other one. So before we start throwing stones at the transgender community, before we start throwing stones at those who support same-sex marriage, you better get in your house and clean your own house up. 
You better make sure that you are living a life like Jesus would have you live, where you are honoring other people, where you're honoring the Lord the way you treat people, that you're loving your enemies and praying for those who hate you and despise you and are out to get you. You need to be living like Jesus before you ever try to fix anybody else. Matthew 7 tells us, before we go talk to somebody about the speck in their eye, we're to get the log out of our own eye. So I want to be clear, those are three areas, broad stroke speaking, where we are dishonoring and rebelling against God in the way we're living our lives. And the cancel culture is just a result of all that. It's a, it's a result of the continuous need our human flesh has to be outraged, along with our drive to have our own selfish needs met. And it's also a reflection of what it looks like when we refuse to obey God and we try to make ourselves God's little g over our own world. I'm going to say it again. I think Grace is one of my, Grayson's favorite Kevinisms I keep saying if you climb to the top of every idol in your life you're going to find a mirror because everything that you're doing in your life that's it's outside of what God wants you to do you're doing it for yourself so we need to follow the same directions that God gave through Micah we need to live our lives in the same way God demanded that those people live their lives and so before we go any further if you would I know it's just one verse but if you would stand with me for just a moment as we honor the reading of God's word as I read for you Micah 6 verse 8 a very familiar verse some of you probably have it memorized, and that's a good thing. But let's read it together. He has told you, men, what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you, only to act justly, to love faithfulness or to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Father, I need you to speak today. Nobody here needs to hear from me. They need to hear from you. I pray that you would speak, we would listen, your spirit would move. In Jesus' name, amen. And by the way, I think that the last two songs we sang could not have been more in line with this message. Um, that we're asking, Spirit, lead me. And we're, we're saying more of you and less of me, being more like Jesus. If we take those two songs, the message of those two songs, it will help us to walk through and walk out what this verse tells us to do. So I want to talk to you about three things. I want to talk to you about the outward, the inward, and the upward. Number one, the outward, and that is to act justly. Justly is a Hebrew word is mishpat, which means legally, rightly, or properly. So it's important to understand the meaning of this word and the way that it's used here is, is not just to act justly, but to act legally, rightly, uh, to comport yourself in the right manner. The Lord said this about Abraham in Genesis 18, 19. For I've chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he has promised him. Now listen to that to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. All the way back in Genesis 18, 19, he's telling Father Abraham to do exactly what he's telling the people of God to do in Micah 6, 8. He's telling exactly the same thing. This is the beauty of God that his entire word, you can't find fault, you can't find wavering. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's telling Abraham that this is the way you're going to do it. I've chosen Abraham because he's going to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And he tells through Micah to act justly. This was right before, by the way, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Anybody remember that story? Not just the destruction part. Everybody remembers the hellfire and brimstone and all that. But think about the, the, the passage we're reading. Just before this happens, Abraham is going to God and he's saying, hey God, um, what if I could find 50 righteous people? Would you still destroy it? And God said, tell you what, if you find 50, I won't destroy it. Abraham's like, 50, huh? How about if I could find 40? 40 righteous people, would you destroy it then? God's like, nope, if you can find 40, I won't destroy it. 40. Let's see. 
How about 30? How about 20? Can I get 15? Can I get t- you see like an auctioneer? God's trying to auctioneer with God. He's trying to bargain with God. He's trying to get it down to where he thinks he can find enough people. And finally he gets down to 10. He said, God, if I can find 10 righteous people. God said, if you can find 10, I won't destroy it. You can see Abraham. In my mind, I picture Abraham walking away going, eh, maybe he got his little Rolodex out. He got his little, you know, remember the little, remember the little books? I know Gino does. Back, I'm sure Gino, because he's so organized, he probably had one of those little books, had everything written in it. He got his little book out, Gino, and he started looking. He's like, Fred's, uh, Fred ain't going to work. Uh, Joe, uh, Joe's kind of a rough guy. Anybody remember how that story worked out? So that tells you all you need to know about finding righteous people. That's why Jesus said there's none good. There's none good, not one. Only our God in heaven is righteous because all the rest of us are battling flesh. So we see even here in Genesis 18, this command to act justly, to do the right things. There are two things I want to talk about on this point. Two things that point us, in, that this should point us to as the way we live our lives. Number one, doing the right thing. Doing the next right thing. I mentioned this this morning. I know that there's, I'm looking around to see who's here. I saw uh, David Lawrence in the first service. I knew David would think this way. I'm trying to, probably Neil. Neil probably thinks this way. Some of y'all, I'm going to give you, I'm going to go and give you two. One of them is doing and one of them is thinking. So I know there's some of y'all, when I said that, you thought, thinking comes before doing. You should put them thinking one and doing two. And I debated about that as I wrote this message, but I want to, and I may be belaboring the point, but I want to make a point of why I said doing is first. All right, so let me give you just a few passages. James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Proverbs 21.3, doing what is righteous and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Think about that now. Doing what is right and just is more acceptable and honoring to God than sacrifice, than giving. How you live your life is very important. Your doing is more important than your giving. Now think about that for a minute. And then James 4.17 says, So it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. In other words, if you know the right thing to do and you do another thing, that's a sin. Period. Doesn't matter. You can't justify it. You can't, you can't like... Well, you know, you don't understand, God. I know I did the wrong thing, but I did it for the right reason. It's still the wrong thing. If you knew to do right and you did wrong, it's a sin. So that's why doing is, is very important. It should be the most preeminent thing we think about when we're trying to think about how to act justly is doing the next right thing. But number two, thinking the next right thing. Now, here's why I put it second. How you do your life tells a lot more to the world watching than how you think about your life. Does that make sense? Danny, you're, what you're doing in your life, Danny, is much more important to me than what you're thinking about doing. Well, Brother Kevin, I was going, I thought about bringing you a pound cake. Well, I didn't get one. Where'd that doing happen? We've got to get that doing moving, okay? This is why I'm telling you that doing is more important. We're talking about trying to act justly. Doing is the most important part of that. Listen, you can sit at home and think about all the good works in the world, but if you never get off your blessed assurance and get out of the house and do something, how are you ever going to win somebody to Christ? Well, I thought about telling them my testimony, Brother Kevin, but I just didn't do it. Well, good. I'm sure that blesses them on their way to hell that you didn't share the gospel with them, but you thought about it. Proverbs 23.7 tells us that as a man thinks, so he is. So you're doing... Watch this, will be reflected by your thinking. And your thinking will be reflected in what you do. It, it's a perfect symbiotic relationship in, 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 in the concept. If it's perfectly acted out, your thinking and your doing will match up and you'll just roll through life. You'll think about doing the next right thing while you're doing the next right thing. 
Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on or think about or ponder these things. Your doing is most important. Your thinking has a terribly important impact on your doing. So that's the outward. The second one is the inward, to love mercy. Now remember, this is the inward because it is to love mercy. It's, it's, a, it's a personal trait inside of you. To act justly is the out, outward part. To love mercy is more of an inward thing. And it, it's not telling us to be merciful, but it's telling us to literally love mercy. Now there's two words here, and I guess keeping with the theme of the second things first, I'm going to talk about these two words in the Hebrew in backwards order. So the first word I'm going to look at is the word mercy. And this is the, the word kesed. I can't do the, I spit all over the place if I try to actually do it in the right dialect, but it's kesed. And what it means is covenant loyalty, covenant loyalty, kindness, loving kindness, mercy, faithfulness. All of these things are wrapped up in this word kesed. This is a foundational aspect of the character of Almighty God. And listen to me, therefore it must be a foundational character trait of you and I if we're followers of Christ. If we belong to God, if we're the children of God, it's got to be a foundational characteristic of us as well. Now let's secondly look at the word love. That word in the Hebrew here is ahabal. Ahabal. And this is often used to signify the powerful, intimate love between a man and a woman, or also it's used to indicate the love that God has for His people. Frequently, it's associated with the forming of a covenant which enjoins loyalty. So, so look at this, loyalty in the word kesed, loyalty and covenant relationship in the word love. So I think that what this is saying is that our love of mercy or faithfulness or kindness reflects our love for God and verifies that we are in a covenantal relationship with Him. That's important. It's important, Morgan, how we reflect what God is doing on the inside. When we love mercy, and again, we're talking about the intimate kind of love, the, the, the reality of love, the, the hardcore love, the deep-seated love. We love mercy. I don't, I'm not merciful because I'm told to. I'm merciful because I love it. I love to be merciful. And can I just be honest with you for a minute? That ain't in my nature. I'm not a mercy person. I am 100% prophet. My wife is 100% mercy. That's why God put us together. Otherwise, somebody would have killed me by now. He gave me a beautiful wife of mercy so she could balance me out. And I've learned so much from watching her live her life, watching her interact with people, things that have gone terribly wrong, deep personal hurts, and watch her love people through them. I just sit there going, how do you do that? And then, I, then I, when I watch that and I question that, I go and I pray and say, Lord, I want to do that. And so God has moved me to mercy. He's moving me to mercy. But I'm just being honest with you. I don't know that I can say truly that I'm here yet to where I can say that I love mercy. I still love justice. I still love telling somebody the truth. You know? But i got to love mercy and I'm working on it. Look all the way back to Genesis 19.19. I didn't plan this, but we went Genesis 18.19 in the first point. 1919 in the second one. I didn't plan it, it's just how it worked out. But listen to what it said. Now, this is Lot speaking to the angels in Sodom after he asked them for more time to get away from the destruction about to befall that town. Listen to what he says. He says, Your servant has indeed found favor in your sight. Watch this. And you have shown me great 
chesed, or mercy, kindness, by saving my life. This is what, this is what he felt as he's telling this angel, you have shown me great mercy in allowing me to get further away. Now look, God is not some sap that's just going to constantly give you mercy because remember, he can't go against his own nature. So he can't go and be unjust, unjustly, uh, live unjustly or un, un, uh, uh, legally. He has to hold to a standard because he's God. And so he still destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But out of his overflowing and abundant mercy, he let Lot and his family escape. And Lot saying, you have shown me this great mercy for, to allow me to escape. Listen to me, church. We need to be people identified like that. That people say, man, that guy shows a lot of mercy. Again, not asking you to be a sap. Not asking you to be somebody that's just a doormat. There is a time to make a stand. There is a time to have a backbone. There is a time to make a, a, a bold stand and say, I'm not going to compromise this. Even though I have mercy, I also have truth. By the way, this is the problem that a lot of people run into in the church now where the church is trying to compromise on everything that God has said because they want to compromise out of the act of mercy. Let me tell you something. Compromising against the holy word of God is not an act of mercy. It's, a, it's an act of stupidity. It's an act of foolishness. It's an act of cowardice. We are to stand on the word of God and let whatever happens happen. But we're to do it in a way that shows people that we care about them and love them. Sometimes the most merciful thing you can do to somebody, Daryl, is to tell them the truth. Amen? It's not merciful to continue to let somebody think that they can drink poison and live. If this is poison in this bottle and I'm about to crack it open and drink it, I hope that Norman rushes the stage and tackles me and doesn't let me drink it. Well, that's not very merciful, Norman. I wanted to drink it. Yeah, but you're a moron. It's poison. It's going to kill you. One of the most loving things he could do is tackle me and knock this out of my hand. That's how we have to treat sin. We have to be able to take sin at what it is and tell people, I love you, but I also love you enough to tell you that what you're doing is destructive to your mortal soul. And if you don't want to spend an eternity separated from God in hell, you need to repent of those actions, come to the truth of God's word, and give your life to Christ. Matthew 5, 7, Jesus said this. I think this sums it up. We'll move on. Blessed are the merciful, for they will shown, be shown mercy. You don't want to show mercy? And this is, what, this is what cut me and made me really start really evaluating my life. If you don't want to be shown mercy, then don't show mercy. But you can't live a life that never shows mercy and then say, all right, God, here I am. Sin and all, but bring me that mercy. By the mercy of God, he gave his son for my life to save me, to cover my sins with the, with the blood of his son. I need to be godlike in the way that I approach others and show them that same mercy. So we got the outward, we got the inward. Now let's look at the upward. The, the upward is walk humbly. Pastor Rick Warren said, the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. And see, the word walk here does not just talk about walk. It, it refers to the way or manner in which someone lives their life or conducts themselves. Uh, in in, in uh, some of his epistles, Paul says to walk worthy of the calling, to, to live in a manner worthy of the blood of Jesus covering your sins. Uh, it points us to the overflowing of their heart rather than acting right or trying to do good. It's not a matter of trying... Listen, this is why he says act justly. In other words, your actions... Not act as in putting on a show, but live your life justly. And then love mercy. But then he tells us to internalize it and to walk humbly. Listen, listen to what Paul says in Romans 7. One of the most befuddling passages in all of Scripture to me, that this comes from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. Just, just bear with me here. I identify with this. I identify with Paul more in this passage than anything else he says. And, and that's not a brag. 
that's just an admission that, that I get where Paul's at here. I'm just shocked that Paul said it. Romans 7, 15 through 18. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, you ain't got to raise your hand. You ain't got to amen. But listen, I'm sure there are many people in here today that say, Ooh, amen, Brother Paul. I feel that in my bones that there's times when... Can we, all right, we just, the camera can't see you. Anybody here just want to admit that you're with me that sometimes you do something and say, Don't, don't it why I do that. I don't want to do that. I want to do the right thing, and here I am doing the wrong thing. Why did I do that? Listen to what Paul says. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. Sin living in me. I remember a comedian one time was talking about he was looking at, a, at a, uh, some ingredients and it talking about fat content. It was a fat content. It's got fat in it. If I eat, it's going to be fat. It's going to get into me. This is what happens with sin. If you don't want sin in you, get away from sin. Listen, if you don't want sin in you, quit looking at stuff, taking stuff in that, that is sinful. I, I was telling this the other day, you'll never hear me cuss in Russian. You won't hear me cuss in Russian one time. You know why? I don't know what, I don't know what the cuss words are. And I don't watch stuff where they're instructing me on how to cuss in Russian. So guess what? I'm not going to do it. If I'm, if I'm filling my mind, filling my eyes, filling my heart with things that are nurturing and good, I'm studying God's Word, I'm, I'm affiliating with people who are helping raise me up and not tear me down, I'm going to have a better chance of not having sin living in me. The more Jesus I get into me, the more sin gets out of me. John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he may increase. And look at verse 18 in that Romans 7 passage. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. Bless the Lord today that even though there's no ability in me to do good, by the Holy Spirit power of God, I can do good when I get off the controls and let Him take over. When I relinquish control over my life and I let say, Holy Spirit, You lead me. You help me know what to say in this situation. You help me know how to handle this problem. You help me get rest when something is laying on me heavy. You take control. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 112, talking about walking humbly and this battle we have with the flesh. This is what the psalmist said. I am resolved to obey your statutes to the very end. Not your, not your rules, not your laws, your whole statutes, the, the, the construct of everything that you've commanded, I am resolved to follow those. Resolved. Reminds me of the old song, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are stronger, these have allured my sight. What are you resolved to do today? Are you resolved to do the right thing? Or are you resolved to do the easy thing? Are you resolved to do the good thing for you? Or are you resolved to do the good thing that would honor the Lord? I think we need more resolve in the church today. The reason we struggle to live out a humble walk is that our flesh presses us towards pridefulness. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit or an arrogant spirit before fall. Listen to this. In the Garden of Eden, God told man that all the earth was his along with all the peace and all the joy they're in, as long as they obeyed one simple rule. And how'd that work out? Why? Flesh. God said, all this is yours. This whole garden, it's all yours. It's perfect, it's peaceful. There's no problem. Listen, there's no gnats, there's no noceums, no mosquitoes, 
no snakes. Well, one snake. No, <laughs> I thought y'all give me more on that. We had one rule to follow, and our flesh said, no. God said, don't do that. And we said, but I want to do that. And that's the nature of humanity. That's why Jesus had to come and drink that full cup of wrath so he could be our propitiation, not only take our punishment, but pay our debt. That's why. Go, you want to figure out why Jesus had to come? Go look at the garden. You want to try to figure out why we're in a cancel culture today where everybody is anti-biblical, anti-morality, but it's also anti-everything else that makes them feel uncomfortable? You know, when I was a kid, we had a, we had a little song we used to sing, Sticks and stones may break my bones. We've eliminated that, y'all. Words are the most dangerous thing in our society. Why? It's because of this flesh, because of this battle we're always fighting. The old song, Rock of Ages, is a beautiful old song. It has a verse that, that I love, and I always just think about this verse when I'm trying to figure out how God wants me to live my life. And this is what it says. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Now, there's a lot of other good words in that song, but that's what walking humbly looks like. That's what complete surrender to God looks like. Where you say, God, I'm not, I have nothing in my hands. I'm not bringing you something to do. I'm not bringing something to try to impress you. I'm just coming with empty hands to cling to my cross, to cling to whatever you call me to do, to cling to the cross of Christ and love and embrace that and know that he died for me so that I can live for you. That's what walking humbly looks like. It's interesting to me that if you look back and see that God gave Moses ten commandments. And then several hundred years later, he gives Micah three. And then later on, he, through Jesus, gives us two, which is to love God and to love others. The instructions that God gave Micah, just like those he gave through Moses and just like those Jesus gave to us, were not suggestions, but they were a requirement. Listen to what the first part of that verse says. He has told you, men, what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you. You could also insert the word demands of you right there. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, well, if you want to. It is a demand. It is a requirement for what we're supposed to do. And here's the key. I know y'all love it when I talk for 30 minutes and then say, now here's the key to living well. And like here, Here's the punctuation. All right. Here's the key to living well in a cancel culture. It's the last three words of this verse. Look at those last three words. With your God. Because each of these requirements are meant to be joined with that phrase. Because of the structure of this sentence, here's how this could read. Act justly with your God. Love mercy with your God. And then walk humbly with your God. Now I can prove that to you in a literal sense, but I can also make it clear this way. If it's only the last one, well you can't do the other two you can't miss the other two and do the last one then. If you're just going to walk with God, walk humbly, and that's the only thing you're going to do with God, let me tell you something. You're never going to do that because those other two are going to preclude you from doing it. So if you want to have any success in acting justly and loving mercy, you better do it with your God. We cannot live justly apart from God working in our lives. We cannot and will not love mercy until we have known the love of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And our flesh will never allow us to walk humbly until it has been brought into submission by the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite passages. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
if you want to change the culture, if you want to have an impact and really change the culture, you've got to start by changing yourself. But here's the thing, you can't really do that. If you go to a bookstore today, you're going to have hundreds, probably thousands of self-help books. They're all lies. You can't help yourself. That's why that's afraid. Well, what happened? I couldn't help myself. That's the, that's the most true thing you'll ever hear. You couldn't help yourself. Your flesh is going to make the wrong choice 10 out of 10 times unless the Holy Spirit is in your life to prohibit your flesh from doing the wrong thing. If you want to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God, you've got to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, I want you to hear me. You've got no hope of doing these three things. Zero. You may pull it off occasionally, but you're not going to live a life of habitually doing what these three requirements are requirements. Now, don't miss that. God said, this is what you are required to do. This is what God demands of you. So if you've never surrendered to Christ, I would beg you and plead with you to do that today. Just come up here and say, Brother Kevin, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I want to turn my life over to Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you say, Brother Kevin, I've done that. I've surrendered my life to Christ, but I'm not walking with Him. I don't think I'm fulfilling those three things. Good. Identifying it means the Holy Spirit is active in convicting you. Now you just got to repent of those things that are keeping you from it and turn your life over to Him. So you can come today and say, I want to rededicate my life. I want to make my commitment to Christ fresh and new today. You can do that. As always, this is what I want you to do. Hear my heart. Being a pastor is kind of like being a professional fisherman that hardly ever catches any fish. Just to be honest with you, it's tough. It's tough. I'm, I'm chunking worms and and crankbaits and everything else and I ain't getting bites that's fine because here's the goal of what I'm doing up here when I'm preaching I want you to be obedient to whatever the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do it really doesn't matter what I'm saying it really doesn't matter what I want what matters is what the Holy Spirit of God is prompting within you right now if you know listen you know and I can't judge it nobody else we can't have a sensor a meter if you're lost the Holy Spirit is prompting you right now he is telling you hey you're lost Hey, psst, psst, he's talking to you. And you have to do business with Holy Spirit. You have to be honest and, 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 and respond. If your walk with Christ is not what it needs to be, the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now, you've got to make that decision to make a move. And coming up here and shaking my hand and having words with me is not going to change anything about your eternity. It's going to be what God does on the inside of you, how much you surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit of God who's supposed to be residing in you. Listen, the Bible says that we're the, we're the temple and the Spirit of God dwells within us when we come to Christ. If you have never come to Christ, you are an empty shell of a building and there ain't no telling what's going to come take up residence in there until you ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. I remember my grandmother when I was little, she would say, well, you can't get tattoos and you can't get piercings and you got to cut your hair and you can't grow a beard because your body's the temple. With all respect to my granny, that's not what the temple means. Listen, I know some people who their temple looks really good on the outside, but inside, like Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees, you're filled with dead man's bones. You're a whitewashed tomb. If you're here today and this Holy Spirit is prompting you, you feel that stirring, please be obedient to that. I, I would give anything if you could just be obedient to what the Holy Spirit is calling you to do today. So if you would stand with me this morning, the commands that God gave Micah are the commands that God is giving us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Would you do that today? If you would bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment, Grayson and Madison are going to sing just a little bit of a song, and we're going to have a time for you to come, and, and we can share, and then we'll be dismissed. But don't, don't pass on this opportunity to be obedient if the Spirit is prompting you.